Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess. In this episode, we interview Deb Raji, a tech fellow at the AI Now Institute working on critical perspectives to evaluation practice in AI, conducting audits on deployed AI systems and facial recognition, and AI auditing policy. Deb has worked closely with the Algorithmic Justice League initiative and on several projects to highlight cases of bias in computer vision. Recently, Deb was named one of MIT Technology Review's 35 Innovators Under 35 for her research on the harms of racially biased data in facial recognition technologies. We reached out to Deb to provide her insight on the recent breaking news from IBM, Microsoft, Amazon, and others who have announced decisions to stop providing general purpose facial recognition and analysis technology to law enforcement and other vendors who have used the technology for mass surveillance, racial profiling, and violations of basic human rights and freedoms. We're so grateful to Deb for coming on the show on such short notice and sharing with us her expertise and her vision for the future. We're so excited to share this interview with Deb with all of you. Hi, Deb. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. It has been a crazy last few weeks for you, hasn't it? I feel like I've seen your name everywhere. (laughs) Yeah, it's crazy. It's actually been like a roller coaster, especially like I feel like the world has sort of been like up and down since March, just complete like chaotic energy. Like the whole world is going through this like chaotic period. Um, And I was kind of just coming off of that, like reflecting on um, a lot of just, you know, the chaos happening in the world. And then suddenly in the last couple of weeks, it's just been like an insane kind of flurry of change in response to that chaos. Um, So that's sort of really how I've been digesting it. Um, So yeah, a lot of the actions of IBM, um, uh, Microsoft and Amazon to sort of uh, press pause on facial recognition has been sort of the accumulation of like years of advocacy. Um, And then just in this moment of kind of like, reckoning of like the the racial relations in the states has sort of prompted all of that you know all of this response and you know even just yesterday um the post act being passed in the in new york city like all of this is i feel like in response to sort of this moment of reckoning and i'm so grateful and so excited to sort of see the kind of future we build um you know coming out of this sort of moment of like you know, insane energy. Um, so yeah, I, I really am like hopeful um, after weeks of sort of being very despondent and very angry and very like frustrated. Uh, I'm finally kind of feeling hopeful for the future and what kind of future we build. Before we dive into some of those current events, I'm wondering if you could tell a little bit of your own story of uh, your role in, in all of this advocacy, because I know you've been uh, part of these conversations for a little bit now. Um, if you could just walk us through kind of how you got involved with all of yeah, this. Yeah, that's, oh, like the origin story. Um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like, I feel like I, I kind of fell into this space and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to be part of this, um, this journey that the machine learning community is going through in terms of just recognizing the reality of the impact of its work and, you know, the, the consideration and the thoughtfulness required in order to do a good job building this kind of technology. So I kind of came in um, thinking that I would, sort of be like a builder of machine learning systems and sort of working uh, on the applied machine learning team at a tech company, just thinking that I would be like creating these systems and, you know, falling for the narrative of like, oh yeah, you know, my responsibility ends there in terms of just making this work. And I thought for a really long time, like if it works, that's fine, that's good enough. Um, and it wasn't until I actually like got into, you know, got on an engineering team, saw the whole process from beginning to end that I started freaking out because I was like, none of this works. <laughs> um, and not only does none of this work, you know, a lot of the data sets didn't have faces uh, that looked like me that included, you know, the face of a black woman. And I, I started kind of panicking a little bit because as I try to have conversations with people, uh, mostly I was kind of involved in the research space at the time as well. So like when I was trying to have conversations with people in the machine learning research space around like, hey, you know, this facial recognition data set doesn't actually have a lot of people of color or even, you know, we don't, we don't really represent this concept in a way that makes sense um, for people of color. So, you know, I was having a conversation with someone building a model to sort of differentiate between hairstyles and hair types. And 
only one category for like all of black hair. And I was like horrified. <laughs> and I was just realizing the amount of power machine learning engineers had to define the outcome of a model. It was staggering to me, you know, all these decisions that they were making, not recording, <laughs> not um, documenting in any way, um, but just having, watching that decision sort of influence the outcome and dictate the outcome in a way that felt completely you know, that that, it, that kind of left those that were impacted completely powerless to stop it. So I think watching that happen for about a year kind of prompted me um, to start investigating this for myself, trying to advocate and talk locally to sort of people that I knew. Um, and that kind of led me to Joy's work at the MIT Media Lab. And she was sort of ramping up the Algorithmic Justice League at the time. Um, and she was sort of one of the other people that like cared as much <laughs> about this topic. Um, and it was kind of funny too, because like once we found each other and we started talking, we we're like, oh my gosh, like someone else really cares about this in the computer vision space. And that's really important. Um, so we had that initial conversation and noticed that kind of synergy and that alignment. Uh, and that was when I started working with her. And she obviously, you know, she contributed the gender shade study and identified a lot of the biases in facial recognition. Um, and I just thought that was such a powerful way of articulating this point of not everyone is um, part of this conversation, not everyone is included in this. Um, and that's affecting the people that are sort of subject to these predictions. So um, yeah, so following that whole situation, um, I kind of on the other side of this landed in a place of like, we need greater accountability for the people building these systems. We need to sort of capture more of these decisions as they happen, but also we need to completely reinvent the way that we evaluate and assess these systems and audit these systems. Like the fact that, um, and this is sort of gender shades and afterwards, I'm, I'm very fascinated by these sort of machine learning systems that we identify in the wild that are already out there, already deployed, already affecting people. Um, that's really sort of the bread of butter and butter of like what I am interested in investigating and auditing because, um, exposing sort of the ways in which those systems fall short um, exposes the fact that, you know, our processes for greenlighting the deployment of these systems is really broken and misses a lot of perspectives and neglects complete, you know, complete, complete entire communities. Um, so, yeah, so that for me was really what prompted me to get involved in this space and to become like super active and excited in terms of, uh, you know, pushing, pushing things forward in a, in a new direction. And from what I've seen, it seems like you are incredibly passionate in this space and that you kind of seem to have always been passionate from when you started working at, at Clarify and when you were back in at the University of Toronto. Uh, and I, I think I remember Joy saying in an event that you were both in uh, last week at the, the premiere of the Coded Bias at the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, um, Joy mentioned something about you reaching out to her and asking if you could work with her. Is that is that true? Is that what happened? Yeah. So I and it was because I had I had kind of well I was actually passionate about like entrepreneurship and like startup life. Like I was like oh, startups are so cool. I, I I consider myself like a very creative person. I really prioritize creativity and like building things and like you know taking an idea and actualizing it in the real world was like something I was super into. Um, and I thought like, oh, code is like such a great way to realize, you know, like your ideas. Um, so that's how I ended up at Clarify because I was like, oh, I want to just work at a startup and like understand what this is and how it works. Um, and then, you know, once I started noticing, like I mentioned, you know, some of the practices that are sort of so normalized in machine learning, you know, these are people building products that affect literally millions of people. And we're also, there's no structure around our, our practices, you know, where we struggle to, to sort of um, think about our role and our accountability and our level of responsibility. So me coming into that space and seeing all of that, and then sort of, you know, having that panic moment and trying to articulate it, but having people be like, no, this is the way it's done. You know, we can't really do anything. Um, that prompted me to like seek out anyone that like cared about it. And Joy had actually at that point already given a TED talk um, because what had prompted her to create the Algorithmic Justice League was she had tried to use a facial recognition product and it couldn't identify her face. So she had to use this white mask. Um, and she had this whole video that she had made around that experience. And she had given a TED Talk on that experience. Um, and me listening to that TED Talk was sort of me hearing for the first time someone that was working on this topic. Um, so it was, yeah, it was like, I was like, oh, this is exciting. This is great. So I sent her, I had actually sent her a bunch of code of like experiments <laughs> that I had done on my own. Yeah. <laughs> I was like super, you know, this was like something that I was like, I don't understand why no one is seeing this as a problem. And then when I finally 
met her was like, oh, there's someone else that actually cares about this. Um, so yeah, I, I like that email is like super embarrassing to pull up now. It's like <laughs> so long. <laughs> like it's like every rule that you get with respect to sending cold emails of like, keep it short and sweet. And like, oh, it was just like way too long. It had like, you know, like code attached to it. Um, and then I think she had responded with like, let's have a call two months from now or something. <laughs> she was super busy. Um, but I'm really glad that I was able to catch her attention and we were able to work together in the end. Because, um, yeah, obviously that's been an incredibly sort of important formative experience with respect to learning um, how to actually take action on, on that intuition that like things were not quite right. It seems like for a long time, people weren't taking action on on any of this, including algorithmic bias. Um, and now it seems like at least in the past week or two weeks, there's been a lot of people trying to take action uh, at the very least. And even, you know, I, I just saw on Twitter earlier today, right? Joy uh, has this new book deal for a book called Justice Decoded, uh, which is very exciting. I mean, that's that's a huge deal. Um, and people are starting to pay attention to this more and more. And I'm wondering for folks who have no idea uh, who are listening right now about like what is happening, what is going on, especially around facial recognition software and surveillance. Um, I know you mentioned the Post Act earlier. If you could just give like a um, as short as possible, I guess like a, a 101 of of what is happening right now and what are you what you're seeing on the ground. Yeah, um, I just wanted to comment really briefly about like that earlier thing of like this topic is becoming mainstream in a way that's like super fascinating. Um, Joy's book, obviously incredibly exciting. Um, I had a call with her and we were like, oh, this is crazy. Um, <laughs> and then also Coded Bias, which is a documentary that was shot a couple, uh, you know, over the last couple of years that coming out literally last week as well. Uh, the John Oliver piece coming out, um, you know, R Rashida Talib just tweeted about it. AOC tweeted about it. So it's kind of becoming this mainstream topic in a way that um, I don't think a lot of us expected. Um, I think with respect to sort of what's happening right now, I, I really do think it's a reflection of the times. You know, police and law enforcement has always weaponized facial recognition, especially against minority groups, um, to target them, to track them. Um, it's a technology that I kind of refer to as like inherently toxic and inherently dangerous just because of how centralized it is. It's kind of like the equivalent of having, you know, a face is, people, a lot of people don't necessarily realize that a face is you know, uh, identifiable biometric, and it's as sensitive information as a fingerprint. Um, so imagine if you uploaded your fingerprints to Facebook, <laughs> to all of your social media. So the sensitivity of the data involved is not something people always recognize. Now imagine having that information for millions of people and having that in a centralized database that's controlled by one authority figure. Um, the potential to manipulate that the potential to take advantage of that situation is so high and law enforcement being given that power in a context and in an environment that we're in right now where people are really beginning to doubt law enforcement's ability to use that power for good um, I think was sort of the perfect storm to begin a conversation of why do we have this technology why is it here who is it actually for and who does it actually benefit and if it's you know if all of this um authority in terms of controlling the system is given to these um, institutions that we're beginning to doubt and we're beginning to question, how does that put us at risk um, as a population, as a general population? Um, and I think we're also going through a period of accountability as well, where, you know, for a long time, um, we didn't really, um, we were hesitant to restrict the use of facial recognition while this more nuanced conversation was happening. You know, there's a lot of points of concern. So, you know, our work has been centered around thinking or you know thinking about the racial discrepancies between the performance of facial recognition and it was this important starting point of like wait this technology doesn't actually work for the people of color that are being disproportionately targeted by this technology and it was a great starting point but um as you kind of see with you know I love the story of IBM because they're kind of a the perfect sort of textbook example of this journey of they started off understanding through gender shades that their model was biased um, and not performing as well for darker-skinned women as it was for lighter-skinned men. There was about a 30% performance disparity, which is fully unacceptable, and people kind of initially attacked the technology for that reason. And then IBM, in their attempt to sort of diversify their data set, realized that, you know, you can't just take Flickr photos of, of people of color and add that to a data set and say that you've solved the problem. That's a huge privacy violation. So they began asking questions around privacy, and the conversation for them shifted towards thinking about are we doing this in a way that respects privacy? Um, 
And then, you know, later on, they had attempted to sort of discuss, um, they had proposed this idea of precision policy. So they were, they were attempting to discuss this idea of, are there positive use cases for facial recognition that are, you know, that are worth the cost of these negative use cases? And um, the answer was sort of this resounding, like, no, not really. You know, a lot of the positive use cases don't necessarily justify the risk of of harm that we see with the negative use cases and the way that it's so easily manipulated and the data is so sensitive um, makes it this inherently kind of dangerous technology. So IBM's decision to like divest from facial recognition came after this whole journey that I think a lot of other companies and other groups are going through. And it's kind of precipitated by this moment of like realization that wait, you know, some of the institutions controlling this uh, technology are also sort of institutions we need to begin to question and we need to revisit. So um, people are much more open to the idea of, you know, reform, but also even abolishment of the technology. And I think, yeah, it's kind of the combination of all these things. With respect to specific actions that have happened, um, you know, IBM has committed to uh, no longer sort of participating in the facial recognition market. Um, Amazon has decided to sort of take a moratorium uh, of a year to say that we're not going to sell facial recognition to police for a year. Um, uh, and, but they had sort of created exceptions for certain groups, but they had kind of committed to, to not selling to police for a year. And then Microsoft soon after that, um, had committed to not selling facial recognition until regulation was put in place in the U S with respect to its use. Um, and, um, since then we've also seen, like I mentioned earlier, the post act in New York city, where, um, it's an act around, um, the NYPD's use of facial recognition being sort of, uh, fully disclosed and all other surveillance tech also being fully disclosed um, to the public and accessible to the public um, and recorded and reported uh, to council, to NYC council. So I think um, those measures of accountability and transparency with respect to its use are also kind of gaining steam as well. So um, that's been really great. And this also comes after, you know, um, earlier this year, uh, NIST, which is the National Institute of Standards and Technology, um, in the U.S., um, sort of for the first time evaluating the technology for performance on skin type and, and skin tone and ethnicity and gender and these different demographic factors, age as well. Um, that was not something that NIST did before, and they cited our paper, which is really exciting. So um, this this shift and this change and this evolution in terms of how we talk about facial recognition and how we, you know, critically discuss, you know, how does it actually work? <laughs> um, this lack of faith and this questioning of the technology is is this kind of emerging phenomenon. I'm I'm really grateful to see that wave come in. Yeah, the current events are definitely incredibly hopeful. Seeing companies like IBM, Amazon, um, Microsoft really jumping on this bandwagon, and I'm curious if you see um, obviously like the the potential for this to continue for years in the future, but then also if there's anything underlying that we're kind of missing here. Like I, I, when I see Amazon banning um, police from using facial recognition technology for a year, or pausing for a year, and then Microsoft waiting until federal law regulates it. So when we have those like waiting until or like the what if <laughs> until yeah, yeah, you have, like these little caveats yeah, conditional. do you see yeah, that yeah. being a good thing like do you think that there's enough faith in, in federal policy and regulation in the future to actually um, implement these systems and fix these problems or do you think that this is kind of all just happening very very fast and everyone just is doing this as like a PR stunt like what what do you see this being oh, okay yeah I definitely don't think it's quite a PR stunt um mostly because um uh, well, in, in some cases, so in the case of IBM, it, it likely was more connected to PR to make such a public statement. Um, they had already removed facial recognition products from like their uh, publicly available sort of developer tool kit, um, uh, like September 2019. They had, they had already kind of shifted away from the facial recognition market and it wasn't as profitable for them to be there. So um, this current statement around, you know, that decision that they had made quite a while ago, they had made privately quite a while ago to make that a public stance in this moment uh, was definitely sort of a, a convenient, you know, uh, thing with respect to their image and also connecting it with the racial discourse happening right now, you know, that, that was definitely convenient for them. Um, uh, but I do think that, you know, these stances being public and, and reemerging in the public discourse um, is like an inherently positive thing. I think that um, you know, these stances do sort of reflect um, the, the 
the successful efforts of advocates to highlight the concerns of the technology and how that is sort of being accepted within these different companies and connecting that conversation of facial recognitions used to, you know, racial injustice to, um, uh, you know, uh, abuse by police departments and abuse by different um, elements of law enforcement is, you know, a concept that not everybody actually is aware of. So the fact that these companies make these statements um, you know, even the PR angle, I think, is beneficial to the conversation and to the advocacy work. With respect to the actual sort of impact of the actions themselves, I literally expect nothing with respect from, from these companies. Like, I, I will never rely on, you know, corporate self-regulation to lead us to <laughs> the promised land of what we need with respect to protecting ourselves from facial recognition and other surveillance technologies. I really don't think companies are ever going to go all the way with respect to what we need from them. Um, I am much more excited or more interested in how regulation can kind of restrict use globally, right, across all the entire industry. Um, and this is something that's come up a lot in my research. So um, in our paper, Actionable Auditing, we reassess, you know, the companies that had been evaluated in gender shades for their uh, racial bias. And we noticed that, uh, you know, companies that were not included in that initial audit uh, don't make any improvements. <laughs> and then in our following paper, Saving Face, um, we, uh, we evaluate sort of audited companies and we look at tasks other than gender classification. So we say, you know, for, for um, model objectives outside of the ones you were audited for, did you even improve with respect to that? And the answer is no. So um, there's a lot of interesting dynamics with respect to how auditing works. And you have to be like, you know, you have to kind of design an audit with such a specific target in mind, with such a specific objective in mind. And if it's not designed in that way, then companies just don't react. So it kind of creates an implicit case for policymakers and for policymakers to take seriously their role in terms of creating um, effective restrictions, right? So if a company, if a, if a company or a set of companies, we can't identify, um, won't, won't make that decision to completely address their issues on their own and they need to be called out, but we can only call out a limited number of companies, then it's up to policymakers to use the results from those limited companies to create these widespread rules. Um, there's a lot of companies that are almost like that are very difficult to audit. So NEC is a huge influential company in this space that nobody's heard of. Uh, Clearview was, you know, stealth for a very long time. People did not hear about it for a very long time. Um, and other other companies that are just like not recognizable names like Amazon and, and Microsoft, but are, you know, majority have majority, Palantir is another one too that people do know in this space. But, you know, if I talk to my family about it, they might not be familiar with um, so some of these companies that are not necessarily mainstream household names, but are hugely influential in the facial recognition market, but do not have any kind of public interface for us to audit with, um, those kind of companies are the companies that I want to see regulated. And they will sort of be the ones that, um, they're the reason why I think, you know, regulation and policy is really uh, the frontier we need to aim for uh, in order to actually sort of see the impact that we want to see um, and protect as many people as we want to protect. Yeah, so I do think that like this, the the current the last week is sort of an encouragement to keep going, but um, definitely limited with respect to uh, addressing all of these issues. Um, and the last thing I'll say, <laughs> sorry, I feel like I've been talking for a while, but the last thing I'll say is that law enforcement is just um, one element and one strand of this. Facial recognition's use in immigration, for example, in the U.S. is quite staggering. Um, and um, the way that different public agencies interact with each other, there's a lot of loopholes. And there's a lot of ways like we've seen with um, local bands by California by Oakland, um, how those um, police departments through access to, um, you know, um, amalgamated and, and uh, uh, sort of uh, joint databases with other counties where facial recognitions use is legal. Um, they're still able to sign, kind of get like this proxy access to facial recognition and they're able to work through these loopholes. Um, so I think it will require sort of like widespread statewide or national um, policy and regulation to re truly restrict the use of the technology and truly kind of ensure the safety of the people currently affected. Um, so yeah, we have a long way to go, but um, I do think that uh, the, the last week has still been this encouraging kind of step forward. 
what do we do with facial recognition technology? Like, is it just this inherently unjust system because it's, you know, embedding our biases into uh, this very particular technology? Or is there... Is there a silver lining to the technology itself, I guess? Um, I'm kind of <laughs> yeah. playing devil's advocate here because I, I have a very particular oh, uh, no, bias sure. towards it. But. No, I, I was going to say, uh, and like, you know, whenever I'm uh, asked to give, like, what are the positive use cases of facial recognition? I'm like, well, there's like entire marketing departments at Microsoft and Amazon committed to this question, um, justifying right. the use and development <laughs> of facial recognition. Right. Um, so I highly suggest checking that out. But I, I have, um, uh, I'm, I'm very familiar with the marketing materials and their kind of pitch for what makes sense and, and how it's being used and, and um, you know, what the benefits are. I will note that um, a lot of the people selling this technology, their client is not you know, um, uh, you know, the, the 14 year old boy that gets misidentified walking down the street and ends up having to deal with, um, you know, getting falsely arrested and, you know, posting bail and all of that, like their, their client is the police department. Um, so in their mind, they feel like they're providing a service for that police department to be able to, um, you know, filter through images and, and, and do their job more efficiently, even though that, that technology might actually end up becoming, uh, you know, a risk for, these affected non-users um, down the line, down the stream of sort of impact. So um, yeah, they would sort of argue that you know there's efficiency benefits for for their clients. Um, in terms of just like use cases that are hard to find fault with, you know, people will cite you know finding missing children, for example, um, or they'll talk about um, they'll talk about sort of uh, innocuous use cases like you know filtering through and tagging like you know your photo app images and putting them in the right folders with different people's uh, identities, uh, like all the pictures of my mom go into folder X. Um, and I think that that's easy to accept and to just sort of swallow as like, this is fine. But I, I do feel like there is something about facial recognition that is sort of characteristically uh, uh, difficult and challenging to overcome, which is that there's so many axes of concern like there's so many things that are wrong with it um you know it, there's the privacy issue and there's the um there's the bias issue which is clear as day because of the research and the work of a lot of great people but there's also this you know foundational issue that i find which is that um because it's such a collection it's like a, a huge collection of sensitive data of you know many many people um, and it's this identifiable biometric, it can be so easily weaponized by whatever authority figure. And that authority figure, you know, the 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 use of the technology is so under the control of this authority figure to do whatever they please with it in a way that is really alarming. Um, I, I often try to cite this case that was mentioned in the um, Coded Bias documentary of Atlantic Towers and um, to kind of just give a summary of that situation. Atlantic Towers is a rent-controlled apartment in Brooklyn, New York. Um, and uh, the tenants found that their landlord, you know, in his quest to evacuate as many rent controlled apartments as possible in order to raise the rent for the entire building, um, would kind of be harassing certain of the tenants. And most of the tenants were black and brown people and the, the landlord himself was white. Um, and there was this tension that existed um, within the, the apartment complex. And he had actually petitioned to um, install facial recognition, despite protests from the majority of the tenants and they had suspected that it was because he was aiming to sort of monitor them in different ways and continue to harass them and effectively extend his authority over the environment using this tool. And in such a great example of, you know, they, they did care about the fact that, you know, there was this biased performance. So the tool is not built for them to, or to work on them. They did care about the fact that, you know, their sensitive information was being collected and they didn't know where it was going and it wasn't encrypted in any way that protected them. But mostly they cared about the fact that this landlord now had this extension of control and authority over their lives and their sense of security and safety. And it was such a warped sort of, you know, because the justification of the landlord was to promote safety and security. And that's very often the justification for the use of facial recognition is we want to make people feel safe, but the installation of this tool was making people feel not safe. Um, so yeah, that was an incredible case. And I, I think I'd encourage people to look into that. Uh, it led to the Biometric Barriers Act sort of being proposed as a bill um, in Congress to protect people in rent controlled housing against um, you know, the unfair installation of biometric surveillance technology. So I, I really do think it was like a great example of how 
the tool is so easily weaponized that almost these positive use cases of finding lost children, you know, we need to explore alternative measures for, you know, solving those problems that don't involve this very toxic and harmful and dangerous technology. Yeah, one of the reasons why I think that facial recognition technology in particular is just such a good use case for AI ethics is because it's kind of like this catch-22, right? So you have this one side of things where if the technology is broken and biased, there's so many issues. And then on the other side, if the technology works, there's also so many issues. And I'm wondering if in all this, despite the fact that there's a few cases where this technology might be beneficial for some, especially marketing companies and and marketing um, boards inside of companies, do you think that it's worth it? Yeah, I I definitely don't. <laughs> I don't think that trade-off is worth it. I think the conversation um, uh, around facial recognition sometimes, I, I like that you painted the fact that, you know, if it works, it's problematic. And if it doesn't work, it's also problematic. Um, and um, sometimes we get stuck in the, if it doesn't work, it's problematic stage of things. Um, so, you know, if, it doesn't work out for people of darker skin, then, you know, I'm more likely to get a false match than anyone else. And then because of that, I am more at risk of being falsely identified or falsely suspected of a crime, for example, or falsely pulled into the immigration system, um, which happens quite often. And I think that case is, you know, terrifying enough for people to begin to question the functionality of the system and whether or not it works. And, and I, I feel like that is usually, um, what we need in order to get people to like press pause and to be like this technology doesn't actually quite work and it's actually dangerous when it doesn't work so we need to pull this off of pull this out of the market um we need to stop selling this and i think that's that's a it's a great um it's where our research kind of lies and it's a great start to the conversation however there's this more nuanced thing around um the goal is not actually getting it to work because even when it does work there's so much that we can talk about with respect to what safety means with respect to um, other risks such as privacy and transparency and disclosure. Um, and that nuanced conversation, uh, I feel like is also kind of emerging. And um, like you said, uh, brings up this fact that like, wait, actually, it's not worth it. And which is the calculation IBM ended up doing where they started off with this question of, oh, let's just make it work. And that'll be fine. And then they kind of landed in this place of like, even if it does work, you know, it's just not worth the trouble. <laughs> it's not worth the trouble at all of um, building this technology that has such minimal benefit and um, is so immature in its current form, um, yet can sort of become incredibly problematic and is so easily weaponized. Um, yeah, I totally think that calculation is being made by a lot of people right now. And we're seeing that the result is that, you know, it's just not worth it. As you mentioned, um, all these successes going on in facial recognition technology and fighting back against it um, are, you know, they're not without context. There's a lot going on in our world right now, um, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, uh, especially the protests and the riots after the murder of George Floyd. Um, and I'm wondering if, uh, I guess I'm wondering, like, what, how you see it all connected? Like, what, what is happening right now? in our world or in our country um, that is allowing these things to finally be pushed through? Because you've been working on this for a long time. Joy's been working on this for a long time. Uh, and, and finally, we're making some movement. And it seems like it's coming all at once. Uh, so what what's going on? That's a great question. I've been reflecting on that a lot. Like, what what happened? Uh, I'm, I, you know, the murder of George Floyd was such a wake-up call for everyone, I think. Everyone was just kind of, you couldn't look away. And, um, you know, um, it's so unfortunate that that had to happen in order for us to truly begin this conversation. But I'm, I'm so grateful for those that are leading the charge with respect to making sure that we continue to not look away, that we continue to pay attention, that we continue to challenge ourselves as a society to really confront these issues. Um, I do think that because it's this moment of, uh, you know, racial reckoning, as I've been calling it, um, people are not shying away from the conversation in the way that they used to. Um, excuses that were sort of swept under the rug in the past are now sort of exposed and people are directly challenging. So I think that's one important thing. The other thing too is, um, you know, I was, I very clearly remember the whole Trayvon Martin situation that happened and George Zimmerman and, um, you know, the, the, uh, the impact of that movement was sort of this reform, the police ideology of like, we need to reinvent this, this, this group of, um, you know, 
this authority figure, this authority group, we need to kind of rethink how they operate. And people are now, um, you know, after George Floyd's murder, people are now like, wait, actually, we don't want, you know, reform led to increased investment in the police to get to get to get these body cameras. Um, reform led to like implicit bias training, which we can't even measure the effectiveness of and we don't even know how well it worked. And like, clearly, there's still there's this historical kind of anchoring of the police and some of these problematic um you know, concepts and these problematic ideologies. Um, so now that the stance is more towards like, you, you, hear, you hear like defund the police or like abolish the police and this more like radical stance of, um, you know, we need to completely like flip the table. <laughs> like, I feel like it's, 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 it's a little bit like um, fueled by that anger and that sadness and the mourning of the black community coming out of COVID. Um, I, you know, when people talk about the George Floyd protest, they need to understand that, you know, the black community was disproportionately affected by the economic downturn, disproportionately affected by COVID, already grieving, you know, so much from all of that, and then dealing with this kind of recurring instance of, you know, racial injustice. So it was sort of this perfect storm for people to just be like, we've had enough, you know, we need to completely stop whatever we've been doing before and completely reimagine a new future that is completely radically different. Oh, very on brand with you guys. Radically different <laughs> from the way things were. Um, and I had a great, um, I had a great sort of, uh, you know, I've, I've heard some great speakers uh, speak to this, especially Ruel Benjamin has said a lot of, of um, incredible sort of comments around this idea of um, AI going through a similar dynamic of people sort of being so frustrated with um, experiencing the harm of these systems that they're just committed to reinventing and reimagining a future um, of this technology that doesn't um, look anything like what was there in the past. So I think because of that, we see, you know, a lot of the surveillance policy being pushed forward and a lot of the companies themselves reflecting on their own role and reflecting on their own commitments and revisiting them and actively connecting these decisions to the racial injustice that we see today. IBM's statement, you know, directly connects that dialogue um the letter to congress that was that was uh, written by the ceo he directly says you know we understand that the police is misusing this in order to terrorize racial minorities and this is not necessarily something that they were public about before but now he can make that statement and say like this is not a radical position anymore like we're all kind of radicalized <laughs> to do something about this um and and it's just easier i think to come out with um a stance against this harmful technology when you understand that you understand what's at stake. You understand that it's such an important element of protecting, um, you know, people that have been racially terrorized for, 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 for centuries. Right. So I think um, that's really what I see as a, la a large sort of the, the huge kick was sort of the one understanding the extent of the state. I think people underestimated the terror that the police has been sort of, um, getting away with on certain minority groups and in certain minority neighborhoods for a long time. So that's become much more visible in the last couple of weeks um, where it's very difficult to ignore. And then the second thing sort of just being that it's much more, you know, there's a lot more people on your side. There's a lot more people sort of embracing a radical vision of what the future can look like. Um, and, you know, this is no small part sort of, this is, this is definitely the, you know, there's no small part played by a lot of the advocates that have been, asking for these changes for a long time and being dismissed as radical. And now everyone's kind of like, wait, no, we do need, we do need broad and sweeping changes in order to reinvent society towards something that we actually want to, uh, you know, live in. Yeah. We are a huge fans of the word radical. That is for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, I said that and I was like, wait, no, that's very on brand. I should call that out. Yeah. <laughs> you guys were radical before it was cool Thank to be you. radical. You know? the radicals. Uh, no, definitely not. <laughs> we're far behind many others. Um, but speaking of this this idea of a radical vision for the future, I would love to know what your idea is for, and really, I guess, what your hope is for the future in all of this. Yeah, that's a great, like, segue to, um, you know, this idea of, uh, so, you know, one of the projects I'm working on um, right now is thinking through um, this idea of participation and this idea of um, empowering uh, regular people, like, you know, people in my family that might not necessarily be on the engineering side or on the research side of AI, um, to be able to have a say in what AI does with respect to their life. And I think that this is, um, 
you know, we, we've organized this workshop um, at ICM. We're, we're organizing this workshop at ICML upcoming in July 17th, if you want to, you know, apply. Um, but it's, it's this idea of, you know, uh, it, the workshop is called Participatory Approaches to Machine Learning, but it really is kind of an invocation or an invitation for other people to, you know, from different disciplines, whoever you are, you know, whatever kind of expertise that you have to bring. But it's this, it's this um, invitation to come in and say, like, how do we actually get, um, you know, everyone that's uh, impacted by this and everyone that wants to have a say in what the system objective is, like what AI is, how do we get them to sit at the table and how do we get them to shape what the system actually does and what the system is? And um, at first, it seems kind of disconnected from the audit, audit, the audit work I do and the documentation work I do, but it really is connected because I see, you know, audits as this great way to communicate um, to the, a broader audience about the limitations of the system. You know, for a very long time, people thought that facial recognition worked because they were told that it worked by a lot of these technology companies. So when you audit these systems and you communicate those results excellently well, which Joy is very great at doing, um, you know, through poetry, through art, through a research paper, through an op-ed, um, people begin to understand the limitations of the technology in a way that actually empowers them to stand up to it, to, to you know, um, to attend that city hall meeting or to, in the case of Atlantic Towers, you know, organize with the Tenants Association to fight against the use of facial recognition in their building. Um, it kind of empowers them within a broader system that, where um, this technology is really imposed on them in a way that is alarming. Like a lot of, I guess, the people affected by the technology also have no say in you know, the taxonomy of the labels being used on them, no say in terms of if a prediction is false, they can't really contest it. So there's all of these dynamics um, in AI where you begin to realize that AI is really this centralized technology, this technology where a few people define almost everything about the system. And if you, and, you know, back to sort of my earlier comment on what makes facial recognition toxic, like that's a lot of what makes, you know, AI systems really problematic is that you have so much data collected in one place, you have so many resources required to train a model, and it's all controlled by just a few people. Um, and, you know, what would happen if there there was a wider scope to the participants in terms of defining what that technology is and how that technology is used and the context in which it's used and if it's built at all, um, like all of this decision making, what would it mean to be more inclusive with respect to that? And what would it mean even, you know, at minimum, uh, which is a lot of the work I'm, I'm doing right now, which is, you know, what would it mean at minimum to communicate more effectively to the broader population about how well the technology works, the limitations of the technology, the process through which, it, through which it's evaluated and the different design decisions made along the way? Um, like, what would that actually look like? Um, and how would that change things for uh, the way that this technology is kind of being integrated into society? So uh, it's like a weird, like, technical policy, like social science question of like <laughs> multiple dimensions. And like, there's definitely different voices coming in to say different things about it. Um, but I'm kind of excited with that direction of like, like this, like kind of collaborative demogra democratic um, uh, version of this technology where um, we all kind of can like stand up and participate in terms of defining what role it's supposed to play in our lives. Um, right now, we don't even know <laughs> when AI is being used and we don't even we have no clue, you know, what went into that system. You know, a lot of the engineers at the company don't even understand where the data comes from, um, you know, and certainly regulators and policymakers don't know that. So right now there's like and that opacity is also like part of what gives, you know, those few people that do know so much more power. So, yeah, I, there's you know so much I could say about this, but really again, sort of like flipping the table, <laughs> like, <laughs> like being like, you have to include us in this and in, in defining what this technology is and how it's used and where it's used and, and, um, and if it's built at all. Um, that's kind of like my rad, that's my radical vision for what AI could look like. <laughs> you should get everyone to say that at the end. It's like, what's your radical vision for AI? <laughs> uh, so I actually, I do have a follow up on that. Uh, but first, I think this question that, that you've raised, I think throughout this interview about, um, I guess, people saying, you know, facial recognition technology works. And then like not necessarily providing a definition for what it means for a technology to work, like for whom, to whom, what are your metrics of it working? Uh, who is it actually benefiting? Um, but I do, I, I did want to follow up on the, the radical uh, question um, and just 
what exactly do you mean by radical? Like, do you have an understanding <laughs> of like what radical is in this space? Yeah. And then do you situate your own yeah. work within that definition? Oh, that's lovely. Yeah. Um, oh, I hope so. I don't know. It's you guys that will tell me. I don't know. <laughs> I can't like invite myself to the club. You have to like invite me. You have to be like, oh yeah, that's radical enough. You can come. You're I, would love to, I would love the privilege of being, of being uh, sort of included in this conversation of radical AI or participating and joining in in the like, you know, exploration of what that looks like. I think, you know, the people that you've invited on this podcast in the past are sort of great examples of people that are thinking at that level. For facial recognition and that question of like, what does it actually take for this to work? Um, I would like to see sort of uh, a version of AI where, you know, from beginning to end, there's opportunity for inclusion of the perspectives of the people outside of kind of the traditional um, authority figures within the AI space. What what it actually looked like to create a version of this technology where um, different people can kind of be involved. Uh, I guess people outside of the traditional locus of control are, are kind of invited in to get to participate and to define what that system actually does. Um, I've been reflecting a lot too on just, um, you know, what it means for policymakers to actually play a role in terms of facilitating that. Um, like I said, there's different dimensions of the problem, you know, I, and I can kind of list my understanding, which is one issue being disclosure. You know, we don't know where AI is being used today and that, that itself is really problematic that I don't understand all the AI systems being used on me. And, you know, it requires years of advocacy to pass something like the post act where we, you know, get the NYPD to just tell us where they're using surveillance tech. Um, then the second thing is sort of around assessment. I don't think we understand or it's properly communicated uh, to the public, but also even amongst developers and researchers, you know, what the limitations of the technology actually are. We don't realistically discuss limitations and we don't realistically assess and evaluate the technology that we build. Uh, we don't properly audit them. We don't properly evaluate them. And that's been a lot of the work around gender shades, but also the, the follow-up work to that. Um, and then there's sort of this like third question of restriction of like, it's not always appropriate to use AI. Uh, there's several contexts in which it doesn't make any sense to do that. Um, and, um, you know, how can we actually either design the system itself or design, you know, our social systems to really give us a say in terms of being able to adjudicate when it's appropriate for us and what we can do to either contest a result, refusal to participate in the system. All of these things um, for me are sort of interesting directions. Yeah. And Deb, as we reach the end of this interview, I'm finding myself resonating a lot with your story about working at Clarify and or Clarify AI, <laughs> however you pronounce it, and um, realizing that the system is broken, yeah. but not knowing exactly what to do about it. And I'm wondering if you can offer a piece of advice for anyone else who might be in that situation right now yeah. and what they can do to try to make that radical change that we're hoping yeah, for. Yeah, I, I would say my my suggestion with respect to that is just to keep looking for for um, just keep keep looking is sort of I guess the the advice because I just kept like investigating you know who else if anyone else if, if I feel like I'm not connected in the right way or I don't have enough resources to sort of make this stance on my own what can I do um, like what is available to me what are what are sort of the investigations I can begin to, to sort of think about um, and then the second sort of thing that I, I really reflected on was sort of like, who else is trying to do this? And can I kind of connect with that person for the sake of accountability, but also just encouragement that like, you're not the only one in the world that cares. You're very likely not the only one affected and you're very likely not the only one that cares. Um, so I would encourage them to just keep looking for those allies. Um, and, um, you know, once they find those allies, it'll be so much easier for them to do that work. Yeah, but I, I definitely think the other advice as well is that when you notice these kind of problems, you know, even when, even before I was taken seriously around it, I was very vocal. And now I'm like, I'm not sure if that was like good. That's, I'm not sure if this is like good career advice. Like, I'm not sure how annoying that was for like, you know, this like small girl to just be like constantly talking about this thing that people were like, is that important? Um, but I think if you, if you really are noticing an issue and, you know, you're developing your thinking around it, it helps so much to be super openly, you know, um, communicative about it just just talk about it with whoever cares and also people that don't care <laughs> um it, it really ends up becoming important because while you're talking about it and when you're so vocal about it the people that 
also care about this issue will be able to identify you and find you. Um, but also people that um, are sort of learning about the issue and developing their thinking around the issue as well. You can kind of educate them that it's something that matters um, and they can begin to understand and identify you as a person that cares about the same thing. And if folks care about the same thing and want to uh, contact you uh, to follow up about this interview or any of the wonderful work you're doing, where can folks find you and connect with you? I am uh, very active on Twitter, probably too active. I get really mad on there. <laughs> like, I, I'm sorry, your your Twitter is one of our favorites. Yeah, we, we, we love following you on Twitter. It's great. Everyone should follow Deb on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I'm very, I'm very vocal. Um, yeah, I would say Twitter is probably the easiest way to access me. Um, there's also email, um, like deb at AINow.org. Um, I, I'm, uh, I'm pretty responsive over email, um, or even through AI now, you can definitely still reach me. Um, so yeah, I think that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me. I guess LinkedIn is a thing that still exists, but I haven't checked it in a while. <laughs> <Same>. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, feel free to reach uh, out via email or Twitter. I think those are probably the way that's the way to, to get to me. Great. Well, thank you so much again for coming on the show, Devin. Thank you for all of your amazing work that you're doing right now. Yeah, for sure. No, thanks for having me. I'm hoping to like one day be radical enough to, to be a radical AI. Uh. You're, you're officially admitted into officially the radical have that club. Title. You're, you're one yeah, of those am now. I radical enough to... Uh... <laughs> yeah, this is great. You guys are doing such a great job with this. And I really appreciate you guys like collecting all of these perspectives um, in one podcast. That's super awesome. We again want to thank Deb so much for joining us on this show and for coming on on such short notice. We also want to thank the Algorithmic Justice League and so many others who are doing this vital work and vital advocacy to change these deeply racist systems that are embedded in so many elements of our technological systems, but especially in facial recognition technology and facial analysis technology. We will leave our longer debrief for our next mini-sode, and in the meantime, we are going to let Deb's words speak for themselves. But one thought that we want to leave all of you listeners with in regards to facial recognition technology and the current events is that sometimes the least harmful way to create a technology is to not create it at all. For more information on today's show, please visit the episode page at RadicalAI.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at RadicalAIPod. And as always, stay radical. Stay radical. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Perfect. Um, okay. Okay.